time someone from our community comes and reads the scripture and that will be forever how we do it but something as I was going through the text today something that I was just struck by was Jesus's reverence for the scriptures so we are going to talk a little bit about Jesus's relationship with the scriptures our relationship with the scriptures but I want to introduce a new practice for this community so when we pause to read the scripture, what we would like to do is stand as a community to acknowledge that we, our hearts, our lives are coming under the authority and the wisdom of the scriptures because the scriptures are ultimately what bear witness to Jesus. So in participation, would you all stand with me for the reading of the word? Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take a seat. Well, if you have been around Midtown for a minute, you know we are in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, just settle into that because we're going to be there for a lot longer. Uh, I was kind of doing the math. We'll probably end this around June of next year uh, because we are slowly walking through Jesus's most influential teaching. And as we've mentioned several times, there are a few things to keep in mind in order that we can follow the Sermon on the Mount more accurately. First, we recognize that this sermon is not an isolated speech. That is to say, when we have questions about the sermon, we look to the life of Jesus. And when we have questions about the life of Jesus, we look to the sermon, that the two work in tandem. Second, that this whole sermon from chapter 5 to chapter 7 is Jesus explaining what life in his kingdom looks like. In Luke, Jesus refers to it as an upside-down kingdom, one that transcends and takes the priorities of the day and the priorities of the moment and flips them upside down. He's teaching us what it means to live in light of his kingdom. And then third, obedience to this sermon is a practice in imagination. It is a task of creativity. It is a task that takes thoughtfulness and nuance. And so our task as a community is to sit with it in imagination, asking, God, what might you be leading us to? Up until this point, we have talked about the Beatitudes, and in reflecting on them, we've seen that Jesus doesn't bless the elite. He doesn't bless the super qualified. He doesn't bless the spiritual superheroes. Rather, he blesses those who have been broken by the world and those who advocate on behalf of the broken. And then last week, Cassie kind of talked through Jesus's metaphor of being salt and light. 
in which we bring out the beauty of God in the midst of society. And the way we do that is by resisting the urge of individualism and by leaning into the community of God that Jesus refers to as his church. And so today we find ourselves reflecting on Jesus's understanding of the Old Testament. Um, I haven't thought about this, but a, a scholar pointed this out, that the only Bible Jesus knew is what we call the Old Testament. The only Bible he read and thought in was what we call old. It's what we call the Old Testament. And this particular scholar suggested it might be beneficial every once in a while for us to call it the Jesus Bible, to rightfully place the Old Testament at the center of our community going, for us to understand Jesus accurately, we have to have an understanding of the scriptures that he read and the scriptures that informed his life. And so today we'll reflect briefly on how Jesus and his followers interact with the scripture. Um, but because we're talking about the well, most well-read and most well-sold book in all of history, I think it's helpful to begin on the same page, uh, pun intended. Uh, the definition, the Bible is a library of ancient literature revealing God's activity to bring about beauty and flourishing out of the chaos of our world. It is written in many genres. It covers narratives, there's poetry, there's like pithy wisdom literature that would fit really well in tweets. There are a vast variety of genres comprising this library. Um, this wasn't written by one author. Now, God kind of superseded and inspired it, but it was written by over 60 authors over a thousand years. And what it beautifully does from the beginning in Genesis to the end in Revelation is it beautifully discusses the complexity of the human condition. Humanity is not seen as this monolithic reality, but the hardest and the best moments of human life are celebrated and mourned in these pages. These writers cover a vast array of genres, and they clearly describe the human condition. They cover everything from sexual ethics, moral order, economic greed, marital interactions, discipling toddlers, ecological advocacy, military violence, the dangers of abusive leadership, the church's relationship with nations, how to prepare a goat for sacrifice. Everything is covered. Like, if you had questions on what do you do with my goat, like, it covers it. Everything is found in the pages of Scripture. But one of the great um, shames of history is that oftentimes this book that is revealing the beauty of Christ and God's efforts to redeem humanity has sometimes been turned into things it was never meant to. Sometimes it's used as a prop by politicians. Other times it's used by a weapon uh, by the small-minded and those who are interested in exclusion it's turned into a business strategy by misguided televangelists. It's turned into things that it was never meant to. More recently, just examples that I can think of over the last 200 years, um, one of our founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, actually took this book. He took the, his copy of the Bible and he took scissors to it and anything that was unexplainable, mysterious, or didn't fit his particular narrative was entirely cut out. 
It's completely removed. And then in the antebellum south, the slaves were given a scripture with the entire book of Exodus removed because it is a dangerous thing for the slaver if the slaves know that our God is a liberator. And there are countless other examples and illustrations of ways in which the scripture has been misused and abused. And in fact, at this moment, what we might describe as the culture wars, these moments in which two political polar opposites collide in the middle and the conversations and the social media posts, in many ways, some of it, a lot of it revolves around how we are reading this book. The divisions and the denominations in the church revolve around how we are reading this text. So obviously, it matters a great deal how we approach this ancient library. And as I was reflecting on this and thinking of it, if you are like me and maybe you've grown up around church, maybe you haven't, I think one of the problems we can encounter is our own familiarity with it. I had a, you know, one of those thick children's books I was given as a kid with the bubbly characters and Samson's not murdering anyone. He is just, you know, really strong. It's the children's version of this book that we grew up around. And in some ways, our own familiarity can give us a false sense of knowing it. We can lean into it as a qualification for our status quo instead of a book that redeems, liberates, and challenges us each at a heart level. Our own familiarity can often give us a false sense of knowing it. But as we read through the text, and as microchurches were, were sitting in long passages of the Old Testament, that's my bad. So uh, for, for you who have sit in microchurch and like, man, this is a lot of scripture, that's, that's my fault. Um, I wanted us to sit with really the stories that make up Jesus's history. But as we read the scriptures, we need to read it as a story that is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets make up Jesus's Bible, the 39 books of the Old Testament, the law, the Torah, the teachings, maybe you've called it, heard it called the Pentateuch, comprised of the first five books of scripture, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers. Uh, great reads, let me tell you. <laughs> Leviticus in particular is, is a fun one. Um, no, these are the first five books that really comprise many of the teachings and the things that the Jewish people gathered their life around. I believe there are 613 direct commandments to the Jewish people in the law. Then the second section that he mentions are the prophets. We sometimes call these the historic um, narratives. It includes Joshua, Judges, Ruth, the Samuels, the Kings, the Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and also the later prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, etc. And then there's kind of a third category that Jesus doesn't mention um, called the writings. And it's kind of just a catch-all for um, the poetic literature like the Psalms, the Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. This is the Bible that Jesus knew. And one of the difficulties 
of engaging with it is sometimes this section of our Bible, which is comprised of the Old and New, sometimes the Old Testament is really difficult to get through. I don't know if you've had that moment where you're going through your Bible plan and you come across a section where you're like, didn't remember this in the Bible. And it's really bizarre and strange and it can be, um, the temptation can be to just give up on it there. And I think just a really simple application of this passage is that Jesus recommends the Old Testament. Jesus mines it for treasure. And so I think just a simple encouragement is keep working. That Jesus found value in these strange tales, these, this foreign wisdom, these bizarre moments and illustrations. Jesus found value for them and they shaped his imagination in a very particular way. And a simple application of this passage is just keep going back to the Bible that Jesus knew. Well, Jesus refers to himself um, not as abolishing the prophets, not abolishing the Old Testament, but as a fulfillment of them. Now, fulfillment is a um, powerful word in Matthew's gospel. This is actually the seventh time in five chapters that Matthew has used the term fulfill. This is to say that Matthew is making a theological statement about who the Old Testament is pointing to. And if you've been in Sunday school, the joke is, the answer is always Jesus. Well, there is a significant amount of truth to that, that we are called Christians and that our life and this text revolves around the person of Jesus. The book of Hebrews, um, which we find in the New Testament, is written, um, we don't really actually know who it was written by. There's plenty of speculation that I'm not going to get into. But it was obviously written by someone who had an intimate knowledge of the law and the prophets. And they open their letter to the Hebrew people saying, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. If you've ever wondered about the character of God, look to Jesus. There is not a characteristic of our God that is not embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. If you have questions about who God is, it is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. He is the fulfillment. He is the climax of the story. And he changes how we read everything previously. Um, I'm a nerd, so just forgive me. But I have watched every Marvel Cinematic movie that's ever been created, and I love them all. So if there's judgment, I embrace whatever judgment you're going to give me. Um, I have watched them all. And one of the things that you can't do with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, or really any series in general, is you can't see the climax, you can't see the war with Thanos, and rewatch everything without that in mind. You pick up new things and new understandings because you understand the climax. This is to say that as we read the scripture, now that we know what it is aiming for, now that we know the climax of the story, everything is read 
in a new way. Jesus is the meaning of the scripture. He is the climax of the story and he teaches it in a new way. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's kind of wrapping up Jesus's sayings and Jesus finishes his sayings, these sayings and Matthew observes that the crowds were astonished at his teachings, his teachings for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes and their Pharisees. This is to say, whenever Cassie or I or someone else gets up here, we're not teaching by our own authority. We're relying on the authority of scripture and explaining it. This is how the Pharisees and the scribes of Jesus's day taught as well. And so the crowds are hearing Jesus's words. They're hearing his description of the sermon. And they're saying, okay, the way he is talking about this is very different than the way our other teachers are teaching it. This is to say that he is affirming and extending the teachings of the Old Testament. More on that here in a minute. But Jesus goes on to say, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. Jesus anticipates two misunderstandings in this text. Notice that there aren't any questions in between. Someone didn't go, hey, what are you doing here? He just anticipates the questions that they might have related to the new authority that he teaches them with. The first misunderstanding might be that he came to set them aside to say, we're done with everything previously. Or the second is that he came to say the exact same thing. The first misunderstanding is that he has come to say that doesn't apply anymore. And we can often be tempted to do something similar as we edit the scripture to fit a particular narrative. Uh, Mr. Thomas Jefferson was somewhat guilty of that first, of setting it aside and pursuing his own direction. And the second is that we could use it to support the status quo. We could use it to say, well, these are how things have always been in Bible, yeah, yeah. Those are the two misunderstandings that happen in Jesus' day and are still happening in our own day. Um, sometimes I think it's necessary to identify um, political parties that are akin to this. And I think oftentimes on the left, there's a desire to create a particular narrative. And so we edit the scripture to make it fit what we want and in the, on the right, there can be a particular trying to say, we're going to support the status quo because this is how it has been. Both are a misunderstanding. And we find ourselves as a community, not as a progressive community, not as a conservative community, but as an orthodox community committed to the way of Jesus and reading his scripture in light of his coming. And so we want to read the scripture this way. Jesus kind of teaches us how to interpret it through his lens. And he interprets it by affirming and extending. Early church father Chrysostom says Christ's sayings were no repeal of the former, the Old Testament, but a drawing out and a filling up. So this is to say that the next 28 verses that are often called the ethical commands of Jesus are an affirming of what existed prior and an extending of them. So 
I, we're going to cover these in the coming weeks, but I think it's helpful to talk about them briefly. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Um, if you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, that is a Ten Commandment. Do not murder. Um, here's the reality, though. It's not too much of a temptation, I hope, for most of you to not murder. If you are to being tempted to murder, please come and talk to us. Like with a lot of people around. Like, I don't want to meet with you just one-on-one. But for most of God's people, do not murder is actually not that hard to follow. And so what Jesus does is he takes a Ten Commandment and he says, don't murder. He is not changing, do not murder. But he is taking it from an external authority and he's embedding it on the heart of his disciples. Saying, you might not be tempted to pull the trigger, but you are fostering a heart of contempt. You have anger and you despise your brother or sister. He is taking an external authority and he is embedding it on the heart of his people. He'll go on to say, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Reading that just as it is, you can say, didn't do the thing, so I'm good. But Jesus is saying by fostering, dehumanizing fantasies in your imagination, you have done the deed. You have sinned in your own heart. Jesus is taking the external authority and he's embedding it on the heart of his disciples. For Jesus understands his role as a gatherer of the Jeremiah 31 people. Briefly, I want to read this passage in Jeremiah, which Jeremiah, again, Old Testament prophet, he is in Babylon. He is writing to a people because they are decimated. They are broken. They are tired. They are weary, and they live in captivity. And Jeremiah writes, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, referring to the 613 commands in um, the law. My covenant that they broke, they broke these commands often and regular. If you've read through the Old Testament, you know They break these laws regularly. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The way Jesus reads this book is through his lens of he is fulfilling it and he is embedding it on our hearts. And this calls for nothing less than a renovation of our very souls. It is to say we will reflect on the inner working of our life and say, how do I take what Christ is leading us to in here and how do I embed it on my soul. If you have ever learned a musical intru- instrument or learned a new language, you'll know what 
I mean by moving something from external to internal. In the fourth grade, I played trumpet. So that is about all my musical interest goes. I played the scales a significant amount and when the saints go marching in. So got those two in my repertoire. But if you've practiced an instrument, you know you continue to play the scales time and time and time and time and time again until it becomes embedded, until it becomes natural, until it becomes easy. A couple years ago in seminary, I tried to learn ancient Greek. I say tried because if you asked me something about it, I'm not sure I could answer. But I had these flashcards in which I would go through vocabulary. I would learn the verb tenses. I would see how it was working. And it took hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of going through this before it became a little bit more natural. Now, the musician or the person learning a new language never moves beyond those basics, but they learn to apply them in new and intricate ways. And it is as if Jesus is inviting us into his kingdom, saying these external laws, if you will practice them, practice them, practice them, they will become the way you live. They will become a natural outworking. It is as if he is inviting us to learn the music of the kingdom and to learn the language of the kingdom. Moving from external law to something embedded on our heart. And the culmination of that work, of those practices, of those habits, is becoming a person of love. In Matthew 22, Jesus is asked by a lawyer who is attempting to trip him up. He says, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And this is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself depend the entirety of the law and the prophets. Jesus as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets is love embodied. And he invites us to do and to be the same. It is an entirely new way to be human, to care for the most marginalized in, in our society, to care for those who we despise or want to despise, to love our enemy as ourselves, to bless those who curse us. This is a new way to be human. It is a new way to live life. It is moving the external authorities to be embedded on our heart. If the worship team would join me on stage, this new way to be human is a crushing weight. This is, I'm going to encourage you, but it is a crushing weight. <laughs> Jesus will go on to say, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches Others to do the same will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is to say that Jesus is inviting us to do our absolute best. He's actually calling us beyond our best to follow these commandments. He's calling us to love more than we've ever loved before. He's calling us to be more disciplined than we've ever been before. 
He even says, unless your righteousness exceeds the holiest people of our day, you will never enter the kingdom. The holiest people, who is that in your life? Think of the people that you would say, that is the picture of a Christian. Is it Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King, Brad Coleman? It could be any number of people, but Jesus is calling us to be better. And this is a scary prospect, if we're honest. Because we just sang about the reckless love of God and the, the major challenge to us experiencing the love of God is ourself. That we know the character of our heart. We know the shadows that are embedded in our soul. We know the ways in which we are fractured, inconsistent, undisciplined, unloving. We know all of these things about ourselves. And if we were to just stop there, just the honest truth is none of us would probably do well. But again, we take the Sermon on the Mount and we look at the life of Jesus. And if there's one consistent thing in the life of Jesus, that he, is, he parties with all the wrong people. That throughout the scriptures, Jesus is sitting with the tax collectors, those who exploit those around them. He's sitting with the sex workers, those who make a living doing all the wrong things. He sits down with the sinners in a way in which we could almost call these dinners forgiveness parties. That it seems to me that the way in which we learn to walk with God, the way in which we learn to move these commandments from external to internal, is we just get really used to going, Father, forgive me. We get really used to the prospect of trying our best and coming up short, recognizing that God was not surprised at all. Thanks for listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.